Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. I am an exercise physiologist and a sports nutritionist and a competitive bodybuilder. Hey, folks. Rob Fortress Fortney here, uh, former competitive bodybuilder, uh, powerlifter, former editor at Muscle Man International. And with us today, we have Mike T. Nelson. Mike's a doctoral student. Uh, what is it? Uh, University of Minnesota? Or are you... Yep, University of Minnesota. Right, yep. And then, okay, just, why don't you just, let's just start off with having Mike. Mike's going to share a bunch of, uh, cool science. There was recently a, uh, mammoth, uh, scientific meeting in Washington, D.C. we're going to talk about. So the, the pendulum here at Iron Radio is going to swing back towards science a little. But before we really get into some of that, um, we'll have, uh, Mike introduce himself a little. And then, um, Rob and I have some news tidbits and then we'll get on right to that topic of the day. Sure, I'm Mike T. Nelson. I'm a PhD candidate in exercise physiology, as Lonnie said, at the University of Minnesota. Hopefully it'll be done, I don't know, relatively soon. I've been saying that for quite a while now. I'm just in the process of publishing my three studies to get everything finished up there. And you can find me on the web at extremehumanperformance.com. I'm also reworking the Mike T. Nelson.com site, which should be finished this weekend, hopefully enough. So cool. you can find me there, sign up for newsletter, free reports, all sorts of cool stuff. All right, yeah. We've had Mike on before. I think we, uh, it might have been our blogger episode about sort of uh, strength and fitness. Um, I was on the – talked about metabolic flexibility once before too. So. Oh, right, right, metabolic flexibility. Okay. Hey, actually, Mike, I thought about you recently when I was when I was trying to carb up <laughs> After months of no carbs, I'm like, should okay. I like ramp up, you know, <laughs> teach my body? Okay. You know, this is not poison. You can have some now. <laughs> there you go. All right. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't carb up crazy. Like I've, I've heard some bodybuilders, they'll carb up on like 900 grams of carbs. Wow. I, I just don't do that. I mean, I was dieting down to about for a long time. I was eating like 150 grams a day and I just carb up on like 400. So it's not radically different, I guess. But anyway, I did, it did make me think about you. Okay, Fortress, you said you've got some uh, some news from the popular media, and then I've just got one little uh, a bit of news that's also sort of from late media consumer stuff. Well, I guess it's not pretty much news uh, now. I'm sure most of our <clears throat> listeners know that uh, Arnold and Mariah Shriver are uh, separated. Not divorced, but separated, so... I don't know. I just found that to be a, a, qu- a question of why did it take so long. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Yeah, that was after what twenty five years or more, I think, huh? Something like that. I mean, yeah, they they met a long, long time ago, and I don't know. I just find it kind of kind of uh, curious that uh, this whole thing has come down right after he left, uh, you know, his office there in California as governor. Well, and he's got that new movie coming out, which makes me think: is he actually going to try an action hero role? You know, I mean, Stallone with the growth hormone and everything tried to reclaim that mantle, you know, and he did look pretty good, if not weird, you know, around the edges because of the whole acromegaly thing. But but it yeah, makes me well, wonder, you know, is is, it, is there a connection between, like you said, leaving office, 
jumping back into the movies and then separating from Maria at the same time. Yeah, well, I mean, from the reports so far that people are speculating, the most popular one is that it's actually Arnold uh, trying to woo back um, Maria. So who the hell knows? I mean, oh, of course, there's been just like rampant rumors over the years about, you know, Arnold's wandering eye. So, but who who knows, man? I mean, he's, how old is he now? Like 63 or something? I don't know. Yeah, mid-60s, I'm thinking. So, yeah, but apparently he's, from what I hear, he's uh, entertained the idea of resurrecting the Terminator role. So, <clears throat> and he wasn't looking too convincing in that role 15 years ago. So we'll we'll have to see how that plays out. No, I just saw him yesterday in a movie. I can't remember. It's the one about cloning. I don't remember what it's called. Uh Oh, but uh, he had a he had on sort of like a heavy sweatshirt and stuff, and even that wasn't hiding his moobs. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know well, what? I, I mean, give the guy. Some, I, don't get me wrong; I'm cutting him some slack. He's, he's in his sixties, for goodness' sake. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, you can go on to all these message boards, and people are just trashing. You know, every time somebody gets um, old or older, you know, it's uh, you know, I mean, actually, on Get Big, there was a recent thread that's. Kind of trash on Dorian a bit, shows him, uh, you know, enjoying the fun and the sun out. And you know, he looks decent for a guy his age. And, you know, it's, it's funny how people are just, like, trashing on him. It's like, come on, man. I mean, I think we all know the realities of the <laughs> competitive professional bodybuilding and so forth. And right. for some guy to retain any sort of physique, you know, at 50-55, who's bit, you know, who used to be on so much stuff and pushed his body so hard that way, um, you know, I mean, it's I think it's decent that the guy's... You know, still looks the way he looks. I agree with that. I mean, after watching some people shrink away some of those pictures of Tom Prince you were showing us and whatnot, and you know, or even guys that I, I like, like Mike Francois. I mean, for Dorian Yates to be have any semblance of you know muscle mass, um, good for him. Yeah, yeah and I, get I off think, his back, people. Yeah, and I also obviously think it's also stupid for people to assume that any of these guys you know are not still using to some degree. Certainly, the ones who have anything left. Oh, absolutely. That's I always just sort of figured, you know, Dorian's sort of, uh, you know, I don't know, 250, 500 milligrams of, of tea a day or maybe maybe more. I don't know. But, yeah, hold on to that like two and a quarter pounds of body weight or something. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly just the abuse that they've done over the years. I mean, you, you can't, you know, assume that these guys can come off just clean at, you know, 45, 50 years old and have anything left. I mean, you know, they're they've pretty much, you know, assassinated their own, you know, production of, you know, right. testosterone. Yeah, minimally, they'd have to be on lots of uh, androgel or something, but anyway. Yeah, and I, I don't know, I'm just curious to see if Arnold will go back in that direction and be be interesting to see if he could reclaim, you know, any kind of... Uh, well, people were talking about how, you know, in that resurrection, what was it called, one, that Terminator one from a few years ago that with uh, Christian Bale, was it, and they had that small cameo of Arnold's Terminator, the T-800 um, or whatever it was, come out, and they did so much CGI graphic stuff on the guy, so it looked like you know his physique from 25 years ago. Oh, I didn't so, even know that. Yeah, and some people were speculating that maybe they'll just CGI the hell out of it. But I mean, I don't know how much can you do. Yeah, I would almost consider that slightly insulting. You know, yeah. well, I mean, you can imagine, oh, Fortress, you know, you're uh, you're looking like hell. Let's just draw some muscles on you. <laughs> Unless they did something like this, you know, how in the Aliens movies they made the uh, <clears throat> the uh, the guy who played Bishop. The onboard robot. Oh yeah, yeah. They re- remade. They made him um, basically just a mirror image of the, of the creator, which was the guy that they showed in the Alien vs Predator, and he just modeled his robots after himself. Okay. 
they could do something like that for it, you know, where it's like, you know, and the, the guy who, you know, had the science that created the Terminator series maybe modeled the original models, the 800 models, after himself and have Arnold play him. I, I don't know. I, I'm just right. Kidding. Somehow, yeah, retcon it so it fits, yeah. And if anybody comes up with that idea and uses it, I'll give you my address to send me the check. <laughs> there you go. Okay, we have one more uh, little bit of news before we get to, to Mike and his discussion of this um, mega meeting, uh, science meeting that was in Washington. And there's some juicy tidbits from that meeting. Make no mistake if you're interested in nutrition and physique. But this is a – it's sort of a consumer advocate thing, and I like to do that on Iron Radio. It's called the Seven Tricks Restaurants Play to basically get money from you. It's a, it's a, it's a topic called menu engineering. And I think for a lot of us who are critical thinkers, it's probably not shocking, but there are a couple of items here. This is from Yahoo Finance from late April, uh, April 19th, 2011. Um, but this menu engineering that's used by restaurants is basically to steer you to buy, you know, high profit items. And so here are a couple. One is called first in show. So basically this is an engineering, a menu engineering concept where you're more likely to either, uh, order the first item on a list. Um, and I think that's kind of interesting. You know, they t- kind of t- tuck less interesting things to the corner or down the list. So if they want you to buy it, it's higher up the list. Now it's enough to make you paranoid. Like, well, if they put a picture next to it or put it high on the list, maybe this is just a profit item, you know, and I'm paying lots of money for something that's really not worth it. But anyway, so first in the list is one. Uh, the other one I, I kind of alluded to menu Siberia. So unprofitable dishes. Uh, they tend to get banished to sort of the corner of the menu. Uh, visual aids is another one. So obviously they're going to put photos next to something that they want you to buy. Uh, you know, and sometimes it helps you figure out what the food's all about, but it's also to draw people in. Package deals is another one. Um, here, it, the quote here says, if only a small percentage of McDonald's customers spend some extra dollars on a meal package, that translates to millions of additional revenue. So, you know, obviously they're going to try to put it together uh, in some kind of a um, meal deal or something, even sit-down restaurants. Um, dollar sign avoidance, I think this one's kind of interesting. Some menus avoid dollar signs and decimals altogether. They try to keep money very abstract, and it makes spending less threatening. So they literally leave off the dollar signs. Uh, another one is the small plate, large plate conundrum. Now, I, this is something I would want to sort of raise an eyebrow and keep an eye on, but it says a restaurant may offer two sizes of the same dish, and the price differential is almost pure profit. So, you know, they could charge you substantially more for the bigger size, but to them, it's just an, another scoop of something, and it's just not a big deal. So, it almost makes you think it'd be smarter to order, I don't know, two small plates as far as economics go. I don't know. And last one is ingredient embroidery. The menu makes each ingredient sound ultra special. It will sell better. And I think we've all seen that kind of stuff before. They do that with dietary supplements too. I mean, when I see, I I had a supplement wrapper I was looking at recently and it said HPLC um, standardized dextrose or something. I'm like, oh, you mean sugar? (laughs) You know, I mean, it's glucose, sure, but. Anyway, and this actually made me think about you, Rob, because I know one of the things that you always say is if you want to save money in a restaurant, you're, you don't buy the pop. You know, the, the soft drinks are just pure profit. It costs them pennies to, you know, to squeeze the juice, you know, it, from the, um, the fountain into the glass. And it costs you like $1.99 or something to drink that eight cent pop. 
Well, you know what? I always say if you want to save yourself both money and usually just unnecessary calories, um, can you usually do it the same way? Yeah. Avoid avoid the, the, the beverages, avoid the desserts, and avoid the alcohol. And you watch what your bill what your bills start looking like. Oh, absolutely. Once in a while, Kelly and I will get a glass of wine. I'm like, nine dollars for a glass of wine, really? You know. Well, you know, I go to over the years. Like, you know, every time I've gone out with a bunch of guys, you know, um, they always marvel at my bill versus theirs, and they're always like, you know, well, what did you order? And I'm like, well, it's not what I did order; it's what I didn't order. You guys were drinking beer and this and that and everything else, and you know. I just stuck to the water and a, and a dish. Yeah, so there you go. There's your Iron Radio edition. We'll make it number eight from Iron Radio. Don't buy soft drinks. That's a loser move. All the way around, economically, physiologically, don't just, just say no. So anyway, I don't know. Maybe take a look next time that you're in a restaurant and look for, see if you in a menu, you know, avoids dollar signs and decimals and things like that. I just think it's kind of fun. This is Rob Fortress Fortney, and I'm here to let listeners know about the upcoming Strength Workshop, co-hosted by Iron Radio in Las Vegas, Nevada, this coming June. Stay tuned for details. Simply listen to www.ironradio.org, also on iTunes, and check out the site as well. Hope to see you in Vegas, where some of the industry's smartest and strongest guys will be waiting to talk shop with you. Okay, so with the news out of the way, uh, we're going to just talk with Mike Nelson here about the experimental biology conference and, and science conferences in general. And I just want to pose an initial question here, Mike, why go to conferences? I mean, a lot of our listeners may not do this, you know, the way we do, is it all fun and glory or is it boring and dull? What do you say? It's actually this odd combination for me of actually both. Um, cause I, I mean, I will literally sit through like a day's worth of boring talks, but if there's one that was, really cool that has, you know, actionable items that come out of it that, you know, can help myself or other, you know, people I work with, then, you know, to me, it's actually worthwhile. Um, plus all the, you know, the conversations you get in with people there and, you know, you get to meet, you know, some of the researchers and talk to them and, you know, ask them questions. And so a lot of times you see studies presented or you read a study and you're like, well, why the heck did they do it that way? You know, and it's really easy to say, wow, they should have done this, they should have done that. And then you actually talk to them, and there's usually some pretty good reason why it was, you know, done the way that it was done. So for me, I always find it's, it's pretty fun. And there are times where you're you're sitting through a presentation that wasn't exactly what you thought, and you're just going, oh, boy, I hope I don't fall asleep in this one. But, I, yeah, I know yeah. how that is. Yeah, you're, you're sort of thinking, I'm glad I'm near the back row or, yep. you know, if I can only wait. Or you, you find yourself in a whole session, you know, a thematic session, and yeah. you're like, this is not what I thought. I can't wait for the question and answer period so I can sneak out between talks or something. Nope. <laughs> so we're going to try to avoid that for some people. And I agree with you too. If you can sort of, if you're always thinking, how can I twist this to my own ends, you know, or yep. apply this to strength athletes or whatever it is, it, it makes it a lot more interesting. In fact, in EB, I'm not sure if it's on, on the list of things you want to discuss, but the one study about vasodilation. And yep. whether or not you need insulin to help or not, I was instantly thinking about all those NO products that are out there because not not to jump the shark here, but they were actually saying that vasodilation without the presence of insulin, uh, not very helpful. Yep. Anyway, so okay, let's let's just dive into some of uh, uh, the background of experimental biology, and then we'll talk about some of the different um, actual papers. So. Experimental biology is actually a collection of other conferences, and I'm part of the American Society of Nutrition, 
And those are sort of the MD, PhD types in nutrition and the scientists, not so much the dietitians, although there are a few. Um, and in addition to the American Society of Nutrition or the ASN, which I encourage people to really check out their website. Um, by the way, they also published the world's number one nutrition and dietetics journal, which is called the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. And Mike actually and I will send back back and forth articles from some of that kind of stuff. I'm I'm subscribed to it and he has access to it. And that's where a lot of the juicy stuff really comes from. Um, really top tier stuff. I mean, I, I wouldn't even attempt to publish in that to be completely honest. They have like a 75% rejection rate just right out of the editorial office before they even send it to their scientists. So, wow. Um, but anyway, uh, there's other conference uh, groups at this meeting too, like the uh, American Physiological Society or APS. And when we were out there, of course, some of us were there for that. So, you know, we've got this mix of both physiology and nutrition. And there's a lot of juicy stuff. I mean, the stuff that you go to conferences for, I think what, one of the things that's exciting, of course, is that the stuff that you see, it's a year or more away from a journal article sometimes and years away from a textbook. So it really kind of – if you go to these regularly, you, you sort of live in this world that's three to five years ahead of everybody else in a way. So I, I don't know. It's kind of cool to see some of this stuff for the first time, this whole act of discovery. But okay, Mike, so let's let's talk about this. I know that one of the first studies you wanted to talk about was about um, a dietary supplement. It's a proprietary blend from I think it's Gaspari Nutrition about boosting testosterone. Is that right? Yeah, the – one of the questions I get a lot of times, I'm sure you guys get the same one, is, you know, do any of those testosterone boosters work? You know, there's various different types have been around. You know, tribulus has been around, and there's a couple newer herbs that are coming out and that type of thing. So I always thought this one was interesting, too. And the downside is that this is a, a very, very small, you know, pilot study, you know, which they, they admitted. So they only have 10 people. They're looking at a proprietary blend for 30 days. Uh, was Viridex XT, I think, from Gaspari. And so what was interesting, though, is that they divided it into uh, separate groups. So they had one group with two caps per day, one with four, one with six, and then also a placebo group. So if you're scratching your head and you go, well, wait a minute, there's 10 people in the study. I've got one, two, three, four groups. Well, not very many people per group. <laughs> um, yeah, unless they cross it over completely. You know, they right. use everybody in each group, right? Yeah. Right, which I don't think they did. I think they just ran them straight for 30 days. Wow. And again, pilot study, right? You're looking to see if anything happens at all. Um, and so what they found was that the, the four-cap group, they saw an increase. Um, but then the next question you'd have to ask is, okay, well, that's nice. But did they, you know, add any more muscle? Did anything else, a, a marker that people are actually interested as an outcome, you know, did that actually change? And they saw about a one-pound lean body mass increase. You know what? Let me interject there right off the bat. Whenever I see body comp stuff like that, people need to realize that these types of measurements are usually within the sensitivity of the equipment. I mean, yep. even something like DEXA, you'd be really hard-pressed to yeah. say – Fortress, you definitely have one more pound of muscle mass than you did four weeks ago. You yep. know, first of all, biologically probably irrelevant, but secondly, yeah, within the sensitivity of the measure. So it really makes you wonder if that was there, frankly, at all, because, you know, of course, equipment has a plus or minus. There's a coefficient of variation with any bit of equipment. And uh, anyway, just had to inter interject that. Yeah, no, no, it's good. Um, so the, 
the positive about it is you could look at it and go, well, a supplement company actually paid for some research because there's a lot of companies that don't pay for any research like true ever. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that part's a good, you know, the, the downside is, yeah, it's not at the point where it's anything you're going to take and run to the bank and go, Oh boy, I'm going to be huge in two months by taking this. Don't know. Right. Um, so that was a Viradex XT is the yeah. product. Was there a percent increase? Did they, did it say how much the testosterone jump was or no? Mm, it might have. I don't, I didn't have that written down. So I don't remember it being anything too crazy. Um, but yeah, the other way to change stuff too is to put stuff in a percentage. So a huge percentage could still be a very small number. So that's always kind of tricky too. Right. Like people need to realize like one is 50% of two, you know, right. stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. You know, one of the things I think about also when I look at a study like this, and I didn't actually attend that session, but is that testosterone changes within the physiologic range, probably arguable if they do a whole lot for muscle mass. I mean, maybe sex yeah. drive or muscle recovery, you know, that kind of thing. But even with things like uh, androgel and things like that, you know, so if you imagine testosterone on a thousand point scale and it's going to increase you, increase you two or three hundred units, it's still you know, is that going to make you jacked? No. I mean, Fortress and I were talking about this the other day that people need to realize when people, they inject testosterone, even a 250 milligram like uh, ampule of testosterone or something, your blood values go up hundreds of times. So a percentage would almost be pointless because it would be hundreds of percent. Right. You know? And yeah, it's really kind of arguable with this kind of stuff. So yeah, and that's, you know, one of the coolest studies that that was done by um, a while back from West and colleagues. I think it was might be from Stuart Phillips' lab, if I remember right. So they, they had a group where they were looking at acute changes in testosterone with exercise. So they said, hey, we know if you do, like, back squats, you know, we measure it, you'll see your testosterone go up acutely after exercise. So they said, well, we'll have you exercise your right arm on the same day as you did back squats. Theory being, right, that if testosterone is actually helping uh, muscular gains, again, you know, from what the body's actually releasing itself, then your right arm should get bigger. And so they had them come back to the lab a couple days later and only exercise their left arm. So the right arm was being done at the same time that the testosterone levels were actually higher. And what they found at the end of the study was, eh, didn't really seem to make much of any difference again. Yeah. you're still within the normal, you know, physio physiologic limits. If you're way down in the bottom, you know, going up a little bit can help. You know, if you're injecting super physiologic doses of steroids, yeah, that'll help. But if you're kind of hanging out in sort of the, the middle normal part of the curve, yeah, probably not going to make a huge difference. Right. Now, but you're aware, you have, um, you mentioned it's also something about a, a 2011 paper suggests that maybe a, a, a reasonable, reasonably modest dose or a jump of testosterone may in fact help in some way. Yeah, there's another paper that came out that said, well, maybe not, maybe it will help. That's hard to compare because there's some, you know, methodological differences in the studies. And the hard part, too, is that all these studies are done with the controlled amount of work. So if you just look at, let's say, the average person who goes to the gym and you give them some supplement and magically their testosterone goes up a fair amount, Maybe they would be able to do more work at that point and handle higher stress. I don't know. Not sure. Because, again, the studies are looking at a fixed quantity of work. 
and then measuring the response to that. Right. So I think Iron Radio uh, opinion on this is, you know, be be a little bit uh, skeptical of testosterone yeah. boosters. You probably really have to jack your T levels a lot, uh, probably more than an herb herbal blend could do. But I don't know. I guess we'll we'll just be charitable and say more research is needed. How about that? Yep, I I would agree with that. And on a personal note, I'm actually trying one product now and had my levels measured and we'll see if there's any difference for me n equals one so yeah yeah i'll let you know (laughs) well let's switch gears here there was another um um presentation that you saw and this looks like something that i saw up in canada a while ago it's about just using light loads very low intensity 16 percent of one repetition maximum loads for actually building muscle and surprisingly they they were kind of suggesting it may en- enhance muscle protein synthesis. Is that right? Yeah, I think the one you saw was was that Nick Bird stuff, which is like twenty or thirty percent of one rep max. I That's think. right. But yep, yep. Yeah, and this one was sixteen percent of one rep max. And so initially, you would think, oh my gosh, that's that's not going to do bubkiss for any of your gains. Right. Um, that equates to what, like fifty repetitions or something, probably, or you know what I mean. Yeah. The- and that's the caveat here is that the, the volume was actually quite high because they did like 10 sets. So the intensity is the amount of weight you're lifting, not real high, but the amount of volume they did was actually pretty high. And again, if we go all the way back to just, you know, basic physiology 101, to get a bigger muscle, you have to overload it somehow. And that can be with intensity, you know, so the weight that you use. It can also be volume, you know, especially a lot of bodybuilders do a lot of work. And then you could also have, although they didn't look at this, uh, density. It's like Charles has talked about a lot for escalating density training, mm-hmm. doing more or the same amount of work in less time. And all three of those are, you know, very potent stimulators of overload. So what's interesting in this study is that even 10 hours post-exercise, again, only 16% of one rep max, that muscle protein synthesis is actually still elevated. So you would think that, well, maybe you got a response, but it didn't last too long. Um, in this case, they know it lasted for at least um, ten hours. So, yeah. Hey, Rob, are you here? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's take sixteen percent times four hundred five, like a bench press. There. So let's if we pretend Rob's max bench is four hundred five, it's probably more than that. But we're, that's a workload of sixty five pounds. Yeah. What's your thought about doing huge volume with sixty five pounds? This says protein synthesis is going to go up. What do you think? Are you going to get huge from that? You're asking me. Yeah. Um, you know what? I, I've always believed that you know extremes in the several ways in which you can increase intensity, you know, through weight training, um, all of it has some sort of benefit towards you know improvement in some sort of bodybuilding type you know situation. I certainly going that low. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, you could get some wicked pumps out of it and. These types of things, and again, I'm not a scientist here, so I can't really add to it in those type of you know words. But right. um, certainly, I think you know, as a general rule, I don't think anybody's really going to succeed that well <laughs> with that kind of training. Certainly, for any length of time, and I certainly don't think anybody who's a, a you know a bare bones beginner at all, um, maybe an advanced heavy training power bodybuilder or powerlifter, maybe you know as a kind of a form of active rest or, um, you know, some sort of kind of like, I don't know, um, you know. Yeah, change of pace, yeah. 
But, I mean, again, you have to look at, you know, the specificity of what you're doing. And like I said, even though I think everything has uh, a time and a place and an application um, within the confines of a weight training routine, um, you know, I, you have to look at also the, just, just like I don't think it's wise that somebody, you know, go for, oh, somebody's getting a call, for 100% max, you know, on, uh, on all your lifts all the time. I think, you know, that's an extreme and so is this. Um, and again, I think that, you know, within the margins of those two things, you can probably find a much more advantageous kind of, you know, way to increase intensity. Um, but like I said, like 65% of some guy who can bench 405, and that's, that's, that's pretty low. So, but again, I mean, I'm not, I'm not disputing anything as, as having some sort of application. Well, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm actually saying 16. That's what Mike is saying. 16%. So it'd be 65 pounds. So it's a 10 pound plate on either side of the Olympic bar yeah. for, for you. Right. I mean, I think I'd be hard pressed. This is almost like an experiment versus experience thing, but I think you'd be really hard pressed to get something out of that, no matter how good you were, you know, with, right. with, with the weights and, and getting what you can out of them. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely big on things like really lightweight for a while. If you're, again, you're working through an injury or you're working through a, you know, what otherwise would have been a, you know, a, a layoff and, you know, not going to the gym at all. But I mean, you know, at some point it gets a little bit ridiculous. And like I say, I mean, certainly if you do, I mean, I have actually done things like that for like a pressing or something. If I've had some sort of like, um, you know, inflammation or some sort of like minor injury, and I've done that for a couple of weeks just to keep the motor pathways open towards that movement and stuff. And I've actually yeah. gone probably relatively um, the same as percentage wise. But again, that was for like, that was by design towards something of, you know, um, you know, recuperating from an injury, like I said, or something like that. I, I certainly don't think if I was, you know, 100% healthy and actually working towards something, certainly in the realm of strength, I don't think that would be something that I would <laughs> suggest yeah. to do for any length of time. And like I say, if you know, if, if if you find that you might want to add in something like that as a second workout during the week for a few weeks or something like that, you might derive some benefit from it. And right. again, like I said, I'm not a scientist, so I don't know like exactly what. But well, let's ask Mike here. Mike, so muscle protein synthesis was elevated. What do you think about this getting translated into actual hypertrophy or what are some of the, the caveats we might have to consider? Yeah, the hard part is, and I can't remember offhand if these are trained or untrained people. So if they're untrained, you know, this is probably a pretty novel stimulus for them. You know, benching 65 pounds is not real novel for Rob, right? So there's that. And then in this study, too, they did provide them with protein. So it was um, infusion. So they had constant levels of protein also, which we know is going to help. Uh, protein synthesis. Um, in reality, with athletes, what I have them do is they can get a, a personal record for volume that they've lifted. And, you know, some guys have gotten really good results by, you know, going much lighter, you know, 40-ish percent of their bench even. Right. But, I, I, I'm going to concur with that. Yeah, 30 to 40, I think you can go that low because yeah. you're talking about 25 reps or something with that mm-hmm. with that kind of percentage. And I think it's a good way to sort of periodize in. You do a little undulating periodization. And for me, I was doing like every maybe fourth workout, I would do something with just 30%. And I mean, the pumps that you get are outrageous. And you're kind of giving your joint and your nervous system a little bit of a break. And, you know, so. Yeah, and some days you can go to the gym. You can, you know, lift a fair amount of weight in terms of a percentage of one rep max. And other days you can't get close to that. But you could do a whole crap ton of volume that day. Oh, I see. Yeah, so play it by ear and sort of tailor the workout for that day. Yeah. Right on. No, there, there's no doubt. I mean, Rob and I were talking about that sometimes too. I mean, if you brutalize yourself or whatever and you're just heavy, you know, and 
you're, you're warming up and even two and a quarter in the squat feels really heavy, something's wrong. You might as well switch gears, you know. Yeah, no need to force it. Yeah. Okay, so let's just keep marching through these because there's a couple of good ones there. So anyway, I, I, I think that might be uh, probably a practical application for this kind of stuff so far as, listen, you know, be wary of the testosterone supplements. If you do do light training, maybe fold it in every so many workouts or, or play it by ear when you just don't have it going on otherwise. Uh, our next study here is, um, what did you say? It was for protein and weight loss. Was this the one where they actually gained muscle and lost fat at the same time? Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, you don't see that very often. Tell us about that. So they were looking at three different groups of protein. So they had you know everything from a low to a high group. So a low group was around 0.72 grams per kg per day. Second group was a little bit higher, 0.84. The highest group was 1.33 grams per kg per day. So if you're looking at a 200-pound person, you're looking at 133 grams per day. So higher than a lot of studies, but not like, you know, super crazy. Certainly not, right, not high for most weightlifters, yeah. No, probably low for them, actually. And what was interesting is that they did five days of aerobic work, only two days of resistance training. And it was nice that they went all the way out to 16 weeks, so four months, right. which for study is actually pretty good nowadays. And yeah, long enough to actually see something and not get stuck like we were talking about before right. with tiny changes that your equipment may not even really be sensitive enough to pick up. Right. And this kind of brings in the whole is a calorie a calorie type thing, too. And then all three groups lost almost about the same amount of weight. So if you look at that and you read the study, you went, ah, you know, high protein, ah, doesn't help at all. But when they actually looked at body composition, uh, the highest protein group lost about 4.8 kilograms of fat, and they actually gained 0.7 kilograms of lean body mass at the same time. Uh, you compare this to the lowest protein group, which lost about 3.6 kg and also lost 0.7 kg of lean body mass. So the, the high protein group not only lost a little bit more fat, uh, they actually gained lean muscle mass, which is you know, more right. fat loss and more muscle. So, uh, right, and without the protein, they just lost all tissues. Yes. Yeah, not good. Yeah, not good at all. Um, the other thing was interesting, too, that the highest group, and they actually used dairy, was one of their ways that they were supplementing the protein group. Uh, also lost some more uh, visceral adipose tissue, so right around the old uh, midsection there. So they lost it from a lot an area that a lot of people are, you know, looking to, in essence, quote-unquote, spot-reduce uh, fat from also. So, Right. Repartition is, mm -hmm. the, yeah, kind of what you got going on there. I've actually seen some articles before about how dairy proteins might have repartitioning effects. And, of course, that's the home run that most bodybuilders are after and so rarely happens, which is can I partition some of the energy stores in my body fat to supply the energy for protein synthesis in muscle, you yep. know, Fantastic. Then, of course, you're you're not just driving calories into one tissue or another, but you're tapping fat tissue for the energy to drive the muscle building. Um, almost outrageous. So I want listeners to know, though, that this is kind of a home run situation. Do not think that most, except for rank beginners, you're not going to see people gain crazy amounts of muscle and lose lots of fat at the same time. I mean, I know Rob's going to concur with that. Were, were these guys untrained initially? Is that what... 
Um, you know, I don't remember to be honest. I think usually they take beginners with that stuff. Recreational trainer, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Um, now, last interesting point on that too is that the high protein group actually ate, if you look at the stats, about 175 calories more per day. Because this was a, what they call an isocaloric study, so they tried to keep the calories the same across all groups. So even though they lost more fat, gained a little bit of lean muscle, they actually even ate a little bit more food. So that really, like right, you right. said, right, is a calorie a calorie for the people who insist that it is in all such circumstances? That kind of blows that away. They ate more, and they lost more fat. Yep. Wow. Well, there you go. Obviously, the macronutrient profile or the type of protein has some impact so yes very cool yeah that was was that the uh that was one of the toronto groups wasn't it i believe so if i remember right yeah yeah good stuff yeah it was it was very interesting okay so let's just keep moving here what else you got what other kind of we'll do one more and then we'll just take a quick break cool um this one's related to that in terms of protein so the next question which is kind of answered by another study is if you just add a bunch of whey protein to your diet, is, is that going to be you know, hugely beneficial? So this group was a 36-week. They actually were double-blind, placebo-controlled, which is always nice to see. And they divided them into four groups. And they ranged from no extra whey protein per day up to 60 grams extra of whey protein per day. So the max protein intake of the, the high group was about 1.7 grams per kg per day. And the, the short takeaway summary was that the whey protein in and of itself did not seem to enhance body comp changes when they were already eating a protein that was adequate. So if your protein levels are high, even though you may not be getting it necessarily from whey protein, adding more whey may not be beneficial, or there wasn't anything that was extremely magical about whey protein if your protein levels were already pretty high. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. 60 grams of extra weight protein a day, that's not, that doesn't that's seem crazy. like a crazy amount. I suppose to uh, traditional dietitians, that seems like a crazy amount when your entire day's intake should be less than 60. But that'll make But, uh, I mean, according to some of the, you know, the RDA and whatnot, but yeah, 1.7 grams per kg per day. So for a, even a 220 pounder, a big dude, that'd be 170 grams a day. Mm-hmm. So, a fair amount. Fair amount, but nothing crazy. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's just we're going to take a quick break for a couple of uh, public service announcements and messages. And when we come back, we'll uh, continue this uh, tour um, through the boring, cutting through any of the boring, and finding the good stuff that can apply to strength athletes as far as building muscle, losing fat, and what's really the state of the arts as far as the science goes. Yep. And we'd like to also announce that with our 100th episode, we're going to offer that caption contest on our Facebook uh, listeners page. So go to Facebook, type in Iron Radio, look at the pictures of Phil and Rob. We're going to have a picture of each of these guys and caption the photo. It should be fun. So again, go to Facebook, Iron Radio listeners page and tell us what Rob and Phil are doing, at least in your head. Should be fun, and you'll win a prize if we choose you as the funniest caption. Thanks.
Okay, we're back with Mike T. Nelson, who is sharing some information from the Washington, D.C. conference, uh, the experimental biology meeting that took place just about two weeks ago. So unless you're in some of these inner circles with the mudfuds, the MD, PhD types, uh, you're not going to get quick access to some of these results. So again, we're trying to also touch on the methodology in these studies and some of the limitations because if you watch the evening news, what you get is just the just the conclusion. Somebody's going to think for you. And I don't like that, especially because they usually try to make things cause and effect that really aren't. Um, but we're going to get right to the source of this kind of stuff with people who were there. And we just got done talking about uh, how you can actually eat more and lose more fat uh, with the right kind of, uh, you know, protein intake. We're talking about different kinds of protein. So what's next, Mike? What else did you see that was interesting? This is something I've been following for a while. Um, Dr. Lane Norton's done a fair amount of work on this from, you know, Donald Lehman's lab. I'm looking at you know, branch chain amino acids and the refractory period that shows up from protein. And this is a presentation from uh, Gabe Wilson, I think, who's doing his doctoral research there. <laughs> and what's interesting is that on his first slide, he you know puts up this picture of Arnold, I think, from the, the Conan days. And he said something like, and, you know, some people may want to look like this. And the crowd just, all the PhDs kind of looked around, had this look of like horror on their face. And you could hear like right. this touch, like, fall through the crowd. Like, what is he doing? <laughs> yeah, what do you, he's cheesing out. Nobody wants that. You're yeah. Right. Yeah. So, but they're looking at uh, branched chain amino acids, especially leucine, may actually sort of reset this refractory period after protein is taken in regards to muscle protein synthesis. So we all know that if you take protein in, your body will upregulate muscle protein synthesis. So it's going to try and take all those proteins and amino acids and ideally you know, stuff them into muscle tissue so it's bigger and stronger. But what's interesting is that there's a sort of refractory period where even though protein levels may actually be maxed out, the the body's ability or protein synthesis actually starts to go back down again, which is a little bit contrary to what you read in all the magazines. They're like, well, you need this type of you know magical protein to keep your protein levels you know saturated the whole day, and it's like having a intravenous protein line all day. And you know, in the, the studies that have been done, you, your body is actually expecting levels to actually go up and down and that that may actually reset the machinery that's needed for protein synthesis again. Yeah. So. Yeah, one of the things I know, was that Gabe? Was that yes. the young man that was giving that talk? Mm -hmm. um, there were a couple of people, in, including, I believe, Paul Greenhoff from Britain, who were mm -hmm. really calling him out, some of the, yeah. the Scottish and British guys, about, you know, you're measuring AMP kinase, which is sort of a, a marker of the energy status of a muscle, and I, I think he was making some comments, if that's the right talk that I'm thinking of, yep. um, that, you know, there's a certain requirement for energy to build muscle. And, I mean, we all know that's true. You know, it's probably 2,800 or 3,000 surplus calories to actually synthesize all those amino acids into new uh, structures. But he was really trying to do that by looking at this enzyme that's a marker of whether or not there's, you know, enough basically ATP versus uh, used up ATP in a cell and they were really pointing out that the, the the enzyme that he was using as a marker of energy status in a muscle probably isn't what he kind of hoped it was i mean it may not be that indicator 
whether or not a muscle is bristling with energy or whether it's not. So, yeah, they were kind of going back and forth there. So I think if, if that sees print, they might eventually tone down or, or redirect a little bit of what they're kind of getting at because I think their point is probably correct that you need calories and energy to build muscle. Mm-hmm. The only drawback would be the enzyme that they were using as an indicator of how bristling a muscle was with energy may not be the best choice. So, but yeah, I think it's cool that people are starting to look at some of this stuff, how muscle protein synthesis will go up and down and it's not just a constant flood and, and, and that kind of stuff. So I know the mTOR pathway, of course, you know, it's going to get triggered with, by certain amino acids, particularly leucine. And for readers who aren't familiar, mTOR is just, uh, you know, it's that sort of central protein synthetic pathway uh, for building muscle proteins. And some researchers will even get more specific and they'll look specifically at myofibrillar proteins just to make sure we're not building some aerobic enzymes or something. Um, and, it, you know, insulin seems to affect this pathway, leucine itself, uh, stuff like that. So, I don't know. It's just interesting that they continue to dig at that and trying to keep resetting muscle protein synthesis instead of, like you said, instead of having six or eight meals, high protein meals a day, maybe you just have three or four and you intersperse them with with leucine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see that probably best when you're trying to recompose or maybe lose some fat, frankly, because if you're trying to put on a lot of muscle mass, and I know Rob will agree with this, you need to eat as much as you can across all six or eight meals of the day. You know what I mean? You can't say, oh, I'll skip my mid-morning meal and just have a little four or five grand, you know, dose of leucine. Because you're missing out on, you're just missing out on too too much fuel, too many calories. But to recompose or to diet, yeah, I was playing with that a little bit in my last contest season. So, you know, I think they're on the right track there. And I also think it's one of those neat things where, um, probably not Don Lehman so much, but at least guys like um, Lane uh, Norton, at least... They're taking what they know or what they speculate by watching bodybuilders and trying to guide their science with it. And that sounds heretical, but let's face it, that's a good idea. I mean, researchers learn from studying little populations, pocket populations all the time. So cool stuff. Yeah, I I thought it was very interesting that the same thing, and that kind of goes against a lot of the, you know, academics too, because up until recently, you know, especially now with more research into sarcopenia and that type of thing, there isn't a lot of research done for you know muscle hypertrophy or trying to maximize protein synthesis, so it's nice to see that there are actually you know studies being done to to look at the different mechanisms now, which is really nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, on your list here of goodies, you mentioned the two talk. I'm going to brief, very briefly touch on the two talks that we presented. We just continued to share some data from from our lab about. High protein diets, because after 20 years, it just became very frustrating to me that I still can't tell an athlete how much protein is too much from a safety perspective. And savvy physicians will usually say the kidneys are very forgiving, for example, when it comes to stuff like creatine or protein. Uh, But less savvy ones aren't. In fact, I just did a class project at the end of the semester. I was just grading it all morning. And a lot of the students, one of the questions is, what are the effects of excess protein? And man, over and over, I heard stresses your kidneys, leeches your bones. And, you know, under very particular conditions, maybe. But for strength athletes, that's a different population. And population specificity is huge. So that's what we basically looked at is guys who are eating huge amounts of protein, 250 grams a day on average, for self-reported periods of nine years, actually more than nine years. And again, just trying to get it long term because most studies are done for 
in, you know, a, a much, much shorter amount of time, weeks or months. And, um, just using standard clinical measures, which aren't hypersensitive, but let's face it, you know, maybe that's good that it's not hypersensitive. We couldn't see anything major happening to guys' kidneys or bones after a very long time wow. of very high protein intakes. So again, it's something happening on a tissue level. You can see with an electron microscope down in the glomerulus of a kidney or maybe, but you know, after uh, 10 years nearly, um, it's not enough to cause anything measurable at all. So who knows? Maybe in year 15 or 20, your kidneys fall out. <laughs> I don't know. Or your bones all shatter. I doubt it. Anyway, and actually it was interesting that Stu Phillips, who's a very notable researcher from the Toronto area, he was he's saying, you know, this kind of stuff really needs to see print because it's just a matter of nobody's really documented. The scientists pretty much know it's the case. Um, but at the same time, clinicians continue to insist, you know, how harmful protein is, whether it's for bone density or for kidney function. And uh, my wife and I sometimes joke, well, what are we supposed to eat? You know, if fats are yeah. so damaging and fattening and carbs are so fattening um, and protein is so damaging, there's nothing left. So, you know, I would, I would argue that of the three macronutrients, protein's probably the least scary. Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you, I was just talking about grading those ter- term papers. The recommendations that the program, you know, the basically uh, that we were using, and it's based on government guidelines, for carbohydrates, it's huge. I mean, students over and over are saying, I eat way too much protein. I eat almost 100 grams of protein. That's double what I'm supposed to, you know, or I didn't eat enough carbs according to the, the uh, government recommendation. I only had like three or 400 grams of carbs, and it wants me to eat 500. And I'm like, oh, my God. Cause, so, you know, the kids, their interpretation is not wrong. That's what the recommendations are saying. And when you start to realize recommendations are so low for protein and so high for carbohydrate, um, especially when these kids, uh, most of them, I would even say, half of all their carbs are from sugar. But, man, if you just look at protein and carb guidelines, it's no wonder we're so fat as a country. Mm-hmm. It's it's bad. And, yeah, the, most people have a hard time or, you know, almost borderline type 2 diabetic. So they have a hard time processing carbohydrates as it is. You know, not that carbohydrates are evil, but you know their body is already having a hard time processing them, so they don't need a whole ton more of them. Right. I recall Cassandra Forsyth when she was doing her dietetic internship. You know, we would sort of share stories because I did that too, of course. And um, she'd say, "Yeah, I'd go talk to a type two diabetic person, and um, we give them their, you know, American Dietetic Association sort of um, approved diet, which includes like, you know, special case cereal and." cornflakes and orange juice. It's just a glycemic nightmare. But then we give them a little Splenda for their coffee or something. You know, I mean, it's almost impossible to divorce people from this carbohydrates are entirely benign sort of notion. And let's face it, if if, if I was a type 2 diabetic, clearly carbohydrates are your issue. You can skirt around that all you want. The elephant in the room is that carbohydrates are a problem for you. Don't just continue to eat them and take the right meds and try to drive it back, drive your blood sugar back down. I don't know. So, okay, but we're going on a tangent here. So, uh, what else do you got? One or two more? Sure. Um, Last thing, too, I got my picture taken with Stuart Phillips. So, that was a pretty highlight for me. (laughs) Very cool. (laughs) I have have one hanging in my office. Some of the students are like, oh my God, it's Stuart Phillips. (laughs) So, it's hanging in the office. I I emailed him later and I said, you know, you're famous. They were sort of a, you know, like a, girls you know around some kind of teen rock idol or something and and he wrote back he goes well nobody recognizes me in the grocery store yet so i guess i'm still safe 
So he's he's like the you know I guess um, nerd idol maybe. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> anyway, um, yes, yeah, so we're talking about like the NO nitric oxide supplements, and there was some very interesting stuff about that too. And the study you had alluded to is I have to laugh at all these you know, nitric oxide products that are still around, are still on the market. Um, a lot of them use primarily high amounts of arginine, which really isn't going to do much of anything for you. And high enough amounts will give you some gastrointestinal issues. But what's interesting is yeah. if you look at a lot of them, they're usually some type of sugar, some type of whey protein. So they're, they're probably kind of working by boosting up insulin levels in the body. So we know that insulin itself is actually a pretty powerful uh, vasodilator, at least one that we can kind of control. Mm-hmm. And so this study was looking at, you know, is it really the effect of insulin and also its vasodilation effect, um, or is it just purely a vasodilation effect? And so they um, gave a bunch of subjects, you know, something to increase insulin, and they gave them sodium nitroprusside, which is a way of increasing blood flow, but it doesn't spike your insulin levels at the same time. It just opens vascular beds, right? Yep, opens vascular beds. Yeah. And so it's a pretty long study that four people in it got infused with carbohydrates, got a whole bunch of you know, chunks of muscle tissue taken out and all sorts of crazy stuff that I would not want to be a part of. But And what they found was that insulin plus amino acid delivery you know, works on the mTOR pathway and also one other pathway, the P70 uh, SK1. And the short version of that is that it increases uh, muscle tissue. But the sodium nitroprusside, which is only increasing blood flow, again, without insulin, pretty much no effect. So Yeah, very, very interesting. With, with all the ads that you hear, you know, and Rob will joke about how sometimes like muscle tech, for example, they keep trying to re-spin something. They make it yeah. like cold as ice and some angle like that or they, by putting mint something in it or who knows what. Yeah. You know, and they keep re-spinning these NO products, and it just blows me away that they're able to continue to keep sales up yeah. with something that didn't have a lot of support in the beginning and continues to get shot down. And I'll tell you, this study is a huge, like, multiple nails in that coffin because they mm-hmm. opened up vascular beds. Nothing. Yeah, nothing. Yeah. So nothing. vasodilation, not very helpful, again, <laughs> unless you just do it like you naturally would with a big meal, right? Yeah. Eat the amino acid building blocks. Get some carbs with it on the way to the gym, like a banana shake, protein shake or something. Pound it down. There you go. Now you got vasodilation. You're flooding nutrients in. Go get to work. You don't have to buy the $50 can of stuff that's, you know, with all the uh, hyperbole about, you know, vasodilation being your key to unlocking growth or something. (laughs) Plus, we know you're going to spike insulin levels, too. It's going to shift your body more towards carbohydrate-based metabolism. You're looking at metabolic flexibility. And that's exactly what you would want before a weight training session. You want to be able to use as much, you know, high energy stored glycogen and ATP and that type of thing as possible. So Right. Faster pathways, yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. So we're winding down for time, so let's just do some random like some shotgun stuff and uh, I'll just throw out some keywords and you just tell me just in one or two sentences, you know, what, what you remember from that. Um I know some of the document you sent me here it's, it talks about random notes. Um, so green tea, something about, um, fatty liver. What's, what's, what was that study about? Yeah. If you have fatty liver, green tea may be beneficial. They didn't study healthy people, so we don't know if it helps them or not. 
<laughs> a lot of people don't realize, yeah, one night of drinking multiple multiple uh, alcoholic beverages, you'll start to get fatty liver. It's temporary. It's not like the fatty liver that you see in metabolic syndrome or whatnot. But Or like the bartender we saw out there. So green tea, another thing. I, I mean, for everything from tissue repair and... It seems almost impossible to overdose on that stuff, too. I've seen studies using 10 cups yeah. a day, you know, so yep. no downside. In fact, I, I continually try to replace part of my coffee intake with green tea, for partly for some of these health reasons. Okay, next keyword, purple potatoes. What's up? Yeah, there's. I guess I was surprised that there's how many different varietals of potatoes out there. And so this study actually looked at purple potatoes, but they actually fried them into chips. And it appeared to be that their solution was, well, if people are going to eat chips, we'll just feed them purple potato chips and they'll be more healthy. And they were more healthy than the regular potato chips. Well, there you go. Yeah, Yeah, I I know there was some people talking in the supplement industry years ago about blue corn extracts, Mm -hmm. like the the blue phytochemicals. And I don't know if they're anthocyanins or what they are, but they may even enhance, you know, lipolysis or block lipogenesis or something or... Yeah, this just goes back to the, the old rule. Eat as many different colored things as possible. And I don't mean lucky charms, right, or tricks. <laughs> Not yellow number five, red number three, whatever. I'm talking about actual, you know, um, phytochemicals like that. But Okay, let's see. Um, CLA and uh, nerve disorders. What do you remember about that? Yeah, once they're looking at CLA, it may help some neurologic disorders. I think they're looking at Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. I'd have to go back and check again. Um, but I find it interesting, and obviously Lonnie, you've done a bunch of work on CLA, that they keep trying to find new uses for it all the time, but yet nobody can even agree on what type of isomer to use. And there's even more rat studies on CLA presented there, which drives me bonkers because humans have been eating it as a supplement for years now. Oh, I know. I, I, I don't even get me going. Yeah, right on. This time it's interesting that it could be helping yeah, with nerve disorders as opposed to something body comp related. I think the key message from something like that is all fatty acids, all dietary fats are pharmaceutical in nature. In fact, when I was at the very first conference, international conference on CLA, which is an uncommon fat, of course, in beef and dairy and uh, mostly supplements, um, a gentleman stood up. This is in a small town in Norway, um, but it was a big meeting, people all over the world. And he said, we keep talking about CLA like it's something special and all fatty acids are like pharmaceuticals. So in that, even in those kinds of studies, talk about methodology we touched on before, it's really hard to find a placebo because no fats are going to be completely inert in their impact on somebody's physiology. So you always have to, when you read fat studies like that, CLA, fish oils, whatever it is, always ask compared to what? What do you use for the placebo? So, okay, next up, um, super broccoli. What do you got on that? Yeah. I thought it was interesting. They had this whole study, and at the end, they said it was sponsored by the Monsanto Vegetable Division. Yeah. That yeah. was actually seriously the sponsor that they're trying to, Monsanto, in their infinite wisdom now, is trying to create super broccoli, which is high in a compound called sephirophane. And I don't know what to think of that. that. This is the same company that will do all sorts of crazy genetic engineering and everything else known to man. And now... It seems like every time we try to tweak with, you know, one component of something, we just screw it up all the time. So, yeah, I was talking just the other day about how certain genetic traits, they often have completely unrelated 
phenotypical results too. You know, mm -hmm. like, I don't know if this is even an accurate example, but for example, I have a chocolate lab and chocolate labs seem to be much spazzier than the other kinds of labs. Well, you think, oh, we're just going to, you know, so a company like Monsanto, for example, if they weren't careful, they'd say, oh, we're just going to change your color to brown, not realizing they're going to make her hyperactive too, which you would never mm -hmm. have guessed. You know what I mean? So I think they do that kind of stuff with, uh, with, with some of these, you know, genetic modifications. So they're like, oh, all we did was knock out one gene or replace one gene or, yep. and then, you know, you get these downstream effects you would have never guessed. So, yeah, so the broccoli will have more sulforaphane, but, uh, I'm still not eating it. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think most people realize that most of the corn we eat, for example, is genetically modified. I mean, it's got its genetic code completely tweaked to either resist pesticides or even produce its own pesticides. Yikes. You know, we are, and now they're starting to link some of that stuff with, uh, like birth defects. And I don't know. I think we're, you know, in many ways, we're victims of our own technology. We're not heeding that whole Jurassic Park lesson very, very well. But nope. at the same time, I'm not totally against GMO foods because if you can do something like take beans and get them to produce the, you know, the one amino acid that beans normally lack to be a complete protein. Now you can feed starving people who are dying of quash your core in developing countries. You know, then it might the the pros outweigh the cons. But if all you're trying to do is jack the antioxidant content of something that's already awesome like broccoli, I don't know. Broccoli's not broke. Maybe we shouldn't try to fix it. So yeah, yeah. All right, and then finally, just just for fun, it will just sort of shotgun some stuff. Um, tales outside of these sessions. <laughs> <laughs> so like for example one thing we've got to see the smithsonian and for people who get a chance to go to dc the smithsonian institution is free it's fantastic if you're a nerd like we are on this show oh, yeah. or even just intellectual god go see that place amazing stuff the natural history museum and science and aviation and you just walk in i mean it's really a national treasure that kind of stuff you know we went down there um i think grade eight for uh, my grade eight uh, field trip, we went down to Washington D.C. and I remember going to the Smithsonian. And at that time, I mean, you know, how old are you? Like thirteen, fourteen. Yeah. And uh, even at that time, you know, I, I remember that place being just outrageous. And if that place can captivate, you know, somebody who's thirteen or fourteen years old, then absolutely. Well, you right. know, where do you get world class, truly world class education and entertainment for free? Other than Iron Radio, of course. <laughs> but no, it's it's an incredible place. So, yeah. yeah, the students and a lot of us just went there. And, of course, Mike and I couldn't resist that either. But um, I don't know. What else did we see, Mike? I can't even remember. I went through around. We saw the, the White House, saw some protesters down there. So, Oh, yeah, they were French. Weren't they French? French? protesters, I think. Or French <laughs> French-speaking country. I don't even know what they were protesting, but yeah, we're getting, getting sucked into the protests, waiting for violence to break out. Not good. What about the whole oh, the hotel room? <laughs> we stayed, and you know, what part of the fun thing with research is you get to stay in some nice places. We stayed in a, in a very expensive sort of sort of Euro-style hotel, and I'll tell you, for the cost. Wow. I mean, now we were kind of abusive. We had a bunch of people sleeping on the floor in corners and stuff, but, uh, what a weird place. Well, I'll tell you, if people, if, if you're going to somewhere that you're not familiar with, and I didn't really know this is like the European style kind of hotel, but this, it was reminiscent of when I, when I have been in, in Northern Europe before, but 
get used to it. I mean, the sink looked like a tub, you know, the, the, that sort of almost nautilus shaped shower thing going on with the water coming straight down from the ceiling. Again, bizarre. Rob, there was this, <laughs> there was, the shower was like a, a, a cylinder that bulged into the middle of the living room, if you will. And it's translucent. So you could see the yeah. person's shadow in there. I mean, you could see their silhouette while people are trying to shower. And I mean, <laughs> it, it was, um, I don't know. I guess if you're doing that in a romantic, uh, date. Well, I was, was going to say, if you're with your woman, I mean, that, <laughs> that's probably a good thing. But yeah, when you're a bunch of, with a bunch of dudes, that's not really happening. Uh, no. Yeah. So I, I don't want to see, I don't want to see your profile <laughs> in <Well>, the shower. <laughs> I would definitely make sure I hit some good shots, some last breaths and stuff. Just to... <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. Oh, and the last thing I think we will mention, we're, we're just about out of time is we went next door to, um, what was the name of that gym, Mike? Uh, I can't remember. I oh, it used to be a CrossFit affiliate. Was it Plain? Yeah, they were. They were. They still had a separate section for like their CrossFit yeah. lab, or yeah. whatever their CrossFit club, whatever it was. And there's people out behind that, you know, and they're acting very close knit and sort of, you know, scowling at us because we just go into sort of the regular gym part. But um, the weights there, what, what do you call? It? You referred to them as bloated. bloated. They have like the 45 pound <laughs> plates are like five inches wide. You know, and I know some people, you've seen plates that are wider than they should be, but these were ridiculous. Uh, the 25-pound the plates, you know, looked like 45s. Even the 10s looked like 45s. And I, I don't just mean in diameter. They were thick. And yeah. so all we were doing, like Mike was doing reps with like 315 in the deadlift, and I was squatting 315 or 365, whatever. Not huge numbers, but the – Plates go all the way to the end of the Olympic bar. We looked heroic. I wish we had some cameras <laughs> for that kind of stuff. And I, I was telling you, Rob, that on top of it, you might – well, it, it wouldn't bow the bar though, but it was oh, cheap yeah. steel. The Olympic bar was yeah. cheap steel. So even with 15 <laughs> on it, you know, Mike looked like a, a Viking descended from Valhalla. <laughs> Pistoning up and down, boom, boom, boom. And people are stopping and watching. And this one guy actually came up and said, oh, are you Lonnie Lowry? I saw your name on the – Sign and sheet, you know, you, you know, I listen to your show or whatever, or read your stuff or whatever. But it just add, if that, if that's true, then that just added to the myth because we looked 10 <laughs> times more impressive than we really are. Uh, nice. It, yeah, that was fun. And I was, I, that day I was, I was sort of, um, protein fasting. I, I had just had little sips of protein all day long, no carbs at all and almost no fat either. And I'll tell you, I, t I was telling Fortress about this, but I was starting to black out. My peripheral vision was going black just doing squats with 315. So, man, people who – I don't know. I've, I've heard about a bunch of stuff about, oh, you feel light and energetic if you go on these, these super low-carb diets. Well, not me. <laughs> I don't know. I almost blacked out. That There was nothing fun about that except for – Well, the, yeah, the I mean I, I know what people mean when they say that, but certainly there's limits to that. I think you had far exceeded that limit, so – yeah, well, that's true. I was so strung out too. Absolutely. Doing the travel and the coffee and everything else, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of good coffee. I'll tell you. I always yeah. judge an area's sophistication by the number of Starbucks that are present. <laughs> For example, here there are none. <laughs> but in DC, there's. I swear to God. I mean, Mike can every can corner confirm this. Two on every block, at least. Um. Just outrageous. So, I mean, it is a cool place, and it was gorgeous neighborhoods and everything. Yeah, lots of coffee, lots of science. There's nothing wrong with that. So, okay. Any closing thoughts, Mike? 
No, just uh, thanks again for letting me crash to the hotel and everything. And, yeah, I greatly appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Yep. So when when we do go to conferences, we'll try to share those online. Um, and, again, if people aren't real interested, I know you have to kind of fast forward back and forth through a podcast to get to what you want. But this is stuff that's going to see print in science journals in a year or two and not in books for maybe three to five years potentially. If so. That. It's really a way to stay ahead of, 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 of people around you and that kind of stuff and get some pointers on what to look out for when you read this kind of research. So roving reporters, I guess, or, or science roving reporter Mike Nelson. All right. uh, one more time, Mike, where can people go to read more? Like I know you blog a lot of this stuff. If you want to see some of this in text format and that kind of thing. Yeah, um, I'll have a new website up very soon. That'll be at www.miketnelson.com, so M-I-K-E. T-N-E-L-S-O-N, and I'll probably still have the blog over at ExtremeHumanPerformance.com, and I have a newsletter there. They can sign up and get a cool free gift, too, so head on over. Right on. Okay, Fortress, thanks for uh, giving your two cents and listening in to some of this kind of stuff. Again, it's... This is great. I always say, man, like just because I'm not piping it, usually the shows where I'm not saying anything, I'm actually uh, just actually enjoying it as I would if I was a listener because uh, I'll tell you, some of this stuff is very educating. So you're not going to run to the gym and buy your NO products and your testosterone boosters right now? <laughs> no, no. I'll, I'll, see if I can, I'll see if I can hack them off to some kid there. <laughs> there you go. All right. <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. All right, man. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, no problem, guys. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. So thank you to those who have done it. Uh, our mug drive, where we're giving away some thank you mugs, almost over at this point. We have just a handful left. And uh, those of you who have already supported us with a $4 a month recurring donation, your mugs are on the way. Again, thank you 50 times. And in the future, we'll try other promotions as well. Thanks. And we'd like to also announce that with our 100th episode, we're going to offer that caption contest on our Facebook uh, listeners page. So go to Facebook, type in Iron Radio, look at the pictures of Phil and Rob. We're going to have a picture of each of these guys and caption the photo. It should be fun. So again, go to Facebook, Iron Radio listeners page and tell us what Rob and Phil are doing, at least in your head. Should be fun, and you'll win a prize if we choose you as the funniest caption. Thanks. For the best sports nutrition information on the planet, make plans to attend the 8th Annual ISSN Conference and Expo, June 23rd to 25th, 2011, at the Westin Las Vegas Hotel, Casino, and Spa. We'll have the latest on creatine, beta-alanine, protein, nutrient timing, and much, much more. So... For more information, go to www.theissn.org. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet, 
or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.